Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. The book of Leviticus will spend several of its opening chapters talking about one particular subject, and the subject is sacrifices, animal sacrifices. How the priests are to present before the Lord sacrifices on an altar, burnt offerings, free will votive offerings, guilt offerings, all kinds of offerings of the flock, of the cattle, of that which is of the domesticated, so that the man might come forth and do business with God at the table of God, his altar. And the fact of the matter is, brethren, before we can go into this book, we're going to have to deal with an issue that is laying upon us, if you will, like a wet canvas that is just pressing down and has been for some time. And that is the issue that in our day we have many more of our brethren who would say, sacrifices are no more. And certainly from the standpoint of in Jerusalem, is there an operating temple Is the priesthood in place? Is the altar operating? The answer is clearly, physically, no, they're not there. Yes, you're right. Physically, sacrifices are no more. But really, when they say that statement, what they're really making is a theological statement, a statement of principle saying there is no more value to sacrifices. What God did here with Israel in this time was for that time, but it is of no more applicable principle or value to us particularly us of the New Covenant. Sacrifices are no more, they would teach and say. One of the most controversial things that is getting ready to happen in this world is the day that Israel in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount will erect another altar. And it will happen, brethren, because the prophecy says so. And it will be a controversy of unbelievable proportions theologically for all of those who call themselves of faith. Now, the real issue is we need to know and understand what does the Torah teach about this and what was its purpose and why, why did God establish this system? And more importantly, understand it to such an extent that we properly understand its purpose and can understand what value still remains. Now, in the course of what I want to share with you tonight, I want to deal with a couple of particular things. One, what is the present Jewish view with regard to sacrifices? Because they're going to use this against you. Whatever the rabbis are saying, they're going to say, well, they're the representative Jewish authority. And whatever they say about sacrifices in the present time probably is closer to the truth than any of the others. And I'm here to tell you that their understanding of it is flawed. This is the very core issue, the very core issue in which the Messiah Yeshua took issue with Israel's religious leadership in that they would not believe Moses. And the prophets came and chastised the children of Israel over the issue of how they were obeying the commandments of sacrifices. Whatever it is that they were doing, it was incorrect. It was not as Moses had instructed. And if we go forward with that air, it will work its ill effect even upon us. So I want to address that. Number two, I want to make sure that this congregation understands the clear and specific difference of when Moses specifically speaks of that which we call a statute and that which is called an ordinance of God. Now, it all gets lumped under the subject of the law of God, the Torah, but there is a difference and there is a distinction between it. And you must understand that distinction because sacrifices are under the guise of statutes, not ordinances. And some of the confusion over the commandments of sacrifices stems from this, this confusion between statutes and ordinances. Secondly, it's really the fundamental question that is trying to be asked here. Why do we obey God? 
If you can understand what Moses is really teaching about sacrifices, you will understand in your own heart, you will be able to answer that question. Why do I obey God? Not must I obey God, but why do I? Why do I obey? And then to understand God's purpose, not so much in sacrifices, Yes, that's included. But to understand what is God trying to teach us when he gives us a statute as opposed to a commandment, as opposed to an ordinance. What is it that God is trying to do with us? And then you will understand why is that the greatest commandment of them all? And why is the second one like unto the first? The bottom line is that at the conclusion of this presentation, I hope that you will understand there is a basis for the statement to say sacrifices are definitely still with us. That the truth and the commandment that was given in the day it was given is still just as true and as valid as it is this day. Now, I mentioned to you as we began that the issue of sacrifices are no more, that while I concede that physically they're not with us, I believe that the understanding, why did God purpose sacrifices to be, is not understood. The real reason of what he was doing and why he specified the way he did has not been well understood. I even admit my own Jewish brethren of ancestry were not sure of it. But one of the things that we should take note of, the reason that we are in the quandary we are today, particularly with our New Covenant brethren, the reason we have men say, the Old Covenant has passed away. The New Covenant is a replacement for it. The reason we have the disputing over it, and it's number one evidence to support that argument, is the issue of sacrifices. If you concede to the fact that the commandment of sacrifices has in fact gone away, it is no more, then quite honestly, brethren, you might as well take the entire sacrificial system and everything associated with it, and it too goes away including the temple, including the priests, including the Holy of Holies, the two tablets, the entire Old Covenant, including the nation of Israel and how it was formed. And if you take that away, then there is no God of Israel. And if you take that away, there is no God of creation. If you say... Sacrifices are no more. And God, the God of creation, the God of Israel, who made the tabernacle, established the priesthood to do this sacrificial system, then it all goes. Now, we're not prepared to accept that. I can tell in your heart, you're, you're saying, no, no, Monty, that's not... But brethren, think about it. Isn't that what we've seen happen? Isn't that the teaching? Even to this day, even Christians dispute the story of creation. If you're a Christian and you dispute the story of creation, you are saying that that God who claims to have created, he's a liar. How did you get that far? Well... You backed off of his statutes for sacrifices. You got rid of the priesthood. You got rid of the entire temple system. You got rid of the covenant. You got rid of the nation that was charged with the responsibility to do it and be a light to the nations. You got rid of that God. You got rid of him all the way. And no wonder we're confused about, well, I don't know if God really created the place or not. Now, we don't really go around specifying and saying, you know, it's a test of fellowship whether or not you fully understand creation and agree that God created. And we don't necessarily go around making a test of fellowship that you have to believe that sacrifices 
are still valid today. These are items that, quite honestly, all of us, our generation, and our many previous generations are struggling with. We are in desperate need of teaching. And I submit that the book of Leviticus, its intended purpose is so that the people of God will understand all of those things. You know, for those who struggle with these parts, and most of them are specified, let's, let's be honest, most of them are specified by our Heavenly Father. The Messiah Yeshua did not specifically come and institute, at least we have in the New Testament, He didn't institute the temple system. He didn't institute the sacrificial system. He came to do the will of His Father. Now, I submit that He was in agreement with it all because He said He came to do the will of His Father, and I believe the will of the Father are all of those things which Moses instructed us in. But for us to, I think, bridge that gap, to be able to answer this question, and for all of those of the New Covenant faith who join with us to be able to answer it, we've got to see some kind of linkage. We have got to see where the Messiah Yeshua not only somehow endorses the, the whole system of temple, of altar, of sacrifice, but that he himself kind of puts his own signature on all of this. And if we could get that vision, we could build on that which we have our trust, our faith in the Messiah Yeshua, and then maybe step back a little bit at a time and be able to absorb and understand. So to me, the key, the key to understanding the book of Leviticus is to understand what does the Messiah have to do with the book of Leviticus. Because if I can find that linkage, if I can find that wisdom, it would help me to be able to quickly endorse the book of Leviticus. Because I know that the Messiah is right. And we have common ground with our brethren in that regard. It used to be in the Jewish way of thinking that when the prophets would come and hint at, particularly Daniel, when he would talk about that the sanctuary might be taken away, might be destroyed, the Messiah might be cut off. There was a great debate in Jewish thought as to whether or not they were going to let the book of Daniel even be in the Tanakh. Because the very concept, the very thought that God would permit the temple service to be stopped, the priests not to render their duty in that regard, and that there wouldn't be a sacrificial system, the very thought in antiquity, it was almost impossible. It's, they would defiantly uh, stood in the face of their enemies, and they said, we can, we can reprove you any way we wish because God will never permit you to ever come to the nation of Israel and ever stop this temple service. This is the temple of God. And lo and behold, did they find out something very interesting when the Babylonians came because the Babylonians took that temple down to their chagrin. And you'd think we would have learned the lesson the first time, but rather the remnant of Judah returned back to the Lamb, rebuilt the temple, and then in the days of the Romans still believed that God would never permit that temple and those services to be stopped that the God of Israel would somehow miraculously, maybe send the Messiah even, would stop the enemy, and we will never suffer the loss of those things. And they distorted, they put so much emphasis on those sacrifices and on that system, they wouldn't even listen to the prophets with regard to their behavior on this, with regard to the prophets came and warned them and said, no, you don't understand. God does not desire sacrifice. He desires mercy. That is what he's really for. Don't you get it? And they didn't get it. They didn't get it. And as a result, they overestimated and they were sorely embarrassed by what transpired. Today, modern rabbis, rabbinical Judaism, they don't make that same mistake. They've seen too much. Not only the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and us being scattered throughout the nations, but pogroms after pogroms 
the Holocaust. Where was God in the Holocaust? Is their question. And so they know there's something about that that's not to that level. So what they've done is they've gone back and they've said, well, you see, really this whole sacrifice business, it was, um, it was for those in antiquity. It was for the ancients who had too many, um, had too many idolatrous nations around them and they, and they worshiped uh, their sacrifices. And what God was really doing was kind of like weaning Israel away from the idolatrous nations. God really didn't, uh, wasn't really into animal sacrifice. That wasn't really his preferred way of worship. But I've got to move Israel away from these other ancient nations. And it's a little bit like, in fact, this is a statement. They say, rather than letting Israel eat from the table and the idols of demons, rather we'll bring them into my table and they can eat of the flesh of the sacrifice with me in my house. It's a little bit like, I don't know if you've ever heard a a parent ever use this logic. It's almost as absurd. You know, it's I don't want my son or my daughter to be out drinking. So rather than have them going to the bars and drinking, let's have them come to my house. I'll open my liquor cabinet up and they can drink in my house where it's supposedly safe. I don't know if you've ever met any parents like that. I have. It's a disaster. And that is not the logic of God. And that certainly is not what is intended here. But I want you to understand, in Jewish thinking, and in particular, you know this is an emphasis. Do you remember when Moses was with Pharaoh, getting ready to bring the children of Israel out? And he said, Pharaoh, and the first request, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, well, why? He said, well, our God, the God of the Hebrews, has commanded us to go out into the wilderness and to make sacrifice to him to worship the Lord. Now, you got to understand from an Egyptian way of thinking what that sounded like. First of all, in Egypt, some of the gods that they had, one was called Taurus the bull. You know the constellation Taurus? Egyptian god. You remember the golden calf, the young bull? They worshipped bulls, cattle. Uh, you say, well, that was an ancient uh, thing. We still got people like that today. The Hindus still do the same thing. That's not so strange. Um, and they also had another god called Ares, the ram. These are constellations. A lot of the constellations are named after Egyptian gods. And so when they heard that these Jews wanted to go out and sacrifice, they knew exactly what that was. You want to take our, our symbol of our God, <laughs> bulls, <laughs> sheep, <laughs> you want to go out and kill them. Now, I don't know what it takes for you to get the message just about how insubordinate that was on the part of Israel to suggest that to the Egyptians, but you do know, of course, that when Joseph first brought his brethren down, he specifically cautioned his brethren, don't tell them you're shepherds. Because he had learned that they were into the worship of Ares, and they considered a shepherd to be an evil one. And they considered all those things opposite. And here's God, the real God, the real great shepherd who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And he's decided, that's the way I do want to be worshipped. So you can imagine the shock to the Egyptians. Well, this basic understanding of origin, and because Israel began to do animal sacrifice right after this, the rabbis then teach that this is what was happening. Israel was being weaned away from. But you know, there's a little flaw in that whole logic. If that's God's real purpose for sacrifice, then why is it that God told Noah right after the flood, when it's only Noah and his family that's left, why did he tell him to go sacrifice animals and worship him? Who, who's the heathen that's left that need to be instructed? So that don't make a lot of sense according to Torah. And furthermore, Israel is completely separate from Egypt now. Why would they need to, besides that, if they followed the rules of Egypt, then they didn't even go around slaughtering and worshiping sheep and cattle and so forth. And why would God then specify to do that? And what's the logic of the rabbis on this one? Because there is none as far as I can tell. 
But I want you to understand that because you know what? Christianity went with it. Modern Christianity liked that. And so the theologians and the church fathers said, well, that makes all kinds of sense to me, and let's go ahead and go one step further and say, when God shut off the sacrifices in 70 A.D., God was also shutting off Israel. That's what they teach. They're saying that Yeshua was the final sacrifice. No more sacrifice. And just to go ahead and prove it, no more covenant, no more nation, no more God of Israel. So now the Gentiles, the church fathers, can go ahead and kind of make up their own system, their own set of priests, their own religious service. If we are going to be a people who's going to stay consistent with the Lord, stay consistent with the God of this book, then we have to stay consistent with the commands and the covenants that he's given. And somehow or another, these sacrifices, this Levitical system that is explained here, still has application, principle, and truth to us. Otherwise, how do you stop it? It's like a guy taking his finger trying to plug a hole, but the whole dam gave way. This We're not talking about some leak that's a little hole or a crack. We're talking about that theologians and so forth have taken the whole covenant out, have taken all the instruction out. And to this day, it is still a hotly debated and contested issue. Is the instruction of Moses still applicable today? And if they're going to jump on one thing as their best argument to prove why it has gone away, it's this book and it's this subject of sacrifices. So if we're going to say that the Torah still is applicable, if we're going to say that the God who is of this Torah is still around and all His promises are true and all His Word is true, then we better come up with a proper understanding of this instruction and be able to speak it as the truth. So, what does this book say? I'm going to hit on just a couple of things for you, just to introduce the book. It says that we are to keep the commandments of the Lord. More specifically in Leviticus 20 and verse 22, it says this, You shall therefore keep all my statutes, all mine ordinances, and do them. Now, there's something at the front end of that, there's two things in the middle, and there's something at the back end. At the back end, do them. No disputing over that. Matter of fact, you won't find anybody to argue with as to what does that mean. We're all in agreement. We know what do them means. So let's back up and go to the front. What does keep them mean? Keep them says you be careful. You be diligent. You do not take this casually. You did not take this in a cavalier way. You find out what this is about. You pay attention to this so that you will do them. It's almost like a quality assurance check right up front. You better find out what every bit of this is about because I want you to do every bit of this. And then he divides it into two parts, my statutes and mine ordinances. Now, you've heard me say it before. The Torah is not redundant. If it says something that you think it's just repeating, if you think statutes and ordinances are one and the same, you're going to make a big mistake about the Torah because he did not slip that word in there for emphasis. He's talking about something else. What? What is the difference between a statute and an ordinance? Basic definition. Same words we use today. Here's what the definition is. What is a statute? It is a law enacted by a legislative body. A group of people are designated to form, to create law. Therefore, they sat down. They consider the ramifications. Who will the law be for? In what manner will the law be kept? What shall be the penalty if you do not keep the law? They legislate the law. It is called a statute. 
an ordinance. Now, I'm sure you've heard of that. That's your local community. That's your city supervisors, your county commissioners. And they got together and they said, in our county, in our city, we want to establish an ordinance. They're not a legislative body. Oh, yes, they're elected officials. They're put in charge. They're given authority. But instead, an ordinance is an authoritative decree. And there's another element to all of this. Statutes, by their nature and definition, are not self-evident. Whereas an ordinance, an authoritative decree, is self-evident. By that I mean that if we have an ordinance that goes out, as soon as it goes out and is decreed that it shall be, you do not have to give any rationale as to what do we have that for? What, what, what is that? Uh, it's self-evident to you as to wisdom and the right and the appropriateness for it. But a statute isn't necessarily self-evident. You have to do it, but you're going to yourself, now, why, why exactly are we doing that? I, I know it's the law. I, I know I have to do it. I know it's a commandment, but why? What, what is the meaning of that one? Why, why would he want us to do that? Let me give you some points. Did you know that the first five commandments of the Ten Commandments are not self-evident? Why? You know, what, what do you mean you're the God of who brought us out of the house of Egypt, the, the house of slavery? What's the commandment there? You know, we, we've taught it's believe in me. It's not self-evident. You have to teach someone that. You have to teach them what is the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. Oh, but it was said in the indicative voice. I know that, but it's imperative. It really is a command. And if you'd really understood it, it wasn't self-evident, but with the teacher, he can instruct you, you can understand. And the same follows with things like Sabbath, honor your father and your mother. Well, your father and your mother is getting pretty close. That, that should be self-evident, right? But I'm telling you, you don't know why. You know it's the right thing, but you don't know why. The Scripture says you do it so that your days will be prolonged. And there's a whole bunch of you who don't know that. You don't know that if you honor your father and mother, you get to live a long life. And if you don't honor your father and mother, you will, your life will be shortened. He said it, but it's not quite self-evident. But some of those that are self-evident, some of those that are just obvious as all get out, I mean, that's the reason why God gave us a commandment, is like, do not murder. I, you don't need to explain that one to me. I've never seen anybody I've had to explain that one to. It's just a pretty straightforward commandment that says, do not murder. I agree. And you can sit there and list a hundred reasons why that's a good commandment. On the commandment of Sabbath, you're struggling to find one good reason. Or you should not commit adultery. We know lots of good reasons why that ought to be a commandment. Or you shall not steal or you shall not lie. We know lots of good reasons why you shouldn't do that. We don't have any difficulty teaching that to our children. You know the ones, but these statutes, these ones that are enacted, that a, a, a creating body has come together, and in this particular case, God, and he said, I'm going to enact a statute now. It will not be self-evident to you as to why, but this is what I want done in this manner and in this way. You know what? Some people... They decide that if they can't quite understand it, if it's not self-evident to them, then it's an option for me as to whether or not I want to keep it. Same God spoke the two things. Spoke the one that was a divine, an authoritative decree, which is self-evident, and then God spoke some others that were statutes, which are not self-evident. But somehow in their thinking process, they say, well, I know God spoke both of them, but, you know, because it's not obvious to me and I don't quite understand, I think I get to decide whether I keep it or not. Case in point. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor is a statute. And I would dare say 
It is not self-evident. In fact, most people are a little confused about that one. How exactly do I love my neighbor? Some people say, well, that means you just don't, don't do anything bad to him. That's not what the commandment said. That's a positive commandment. We're going to talk about that for just a little bit more. The point being is this, is why, and in our thinking, why do we obey the Lord? Because you understand it? Because it's self-evident to you? That, that's why we keep because Because you agree with God? And on the ones you don't agree with God, well, you don't have to keep those, and that's your rationale for why you obey? I've shared with you before that this, this question is asked uh, in the form of a little Jewish anecdote. One Jew speaks to another, and he says, Why? Why should we obey the Lord? And the wise sage says, There are two reasons. First, it's better for us. You understand that it's better if you obey the Lord. But the second reason is actually greater than the first. Because God said so. Whoa. Why do we obey? Because we figured it out. Oh, this is good for me. I want what's good for me. So let's obey the Lord. What about the other reason? You see, because if you really could understand the other reason, who cares about the first one? Because there's a good possibility, brethren, and it's happened in my life, and I submit it's already happened in your life, God may command you to do something that may not, in your estimation, be to your better. But He may want you to do it anyways. What am I saying? I'm saying God might ask you to make a sacrifice, something of value, something about you, and that after you've given the sacrifice, you have less, not more. And you've done it because he said so. And that was your service. That was your faith. That was your obedience. So what did God ask Israel to do? Israel, I want you to go to your prized possessions, the animals of your domestic flock, the ones you wouldn't even eat in the wilderness. I want you to bring those and give them to me. Wait a minute, God, if I start giving you all my animals, my herd won't grow as much. This is a loss. This, this is not a gain, God. I know. But that's what I want you to do. Why would God have us to do such a thing? I thought God was on our side. I thought he said he wanted to bless us. I thought he said he cared for us. He loved us. He wanted to make us successful and prosperous. Why in the world is he taking my number one, my best assets, and he's saying, give them up? Why am I being called to make a sacrifice? And because we don't understand, we hesitate. And even to this day, that problem has not gone away. Some are asked to tithe. Oh, my goodness. Can I, Lord, how am I ever going to pay for the kids' college, get out of debt, ever have a hope of a retirement program if I got a clip right off the top of the gross 10% to you? Explain that to me, God. You know you want to bless me. You know all these things are supposed to be. And besides that, you've shown me a couple of times that this thing really doesn't work to my advantage. And I lose. You know, and why, why do you ask me to do that? And as a result, because of all those fundamental things, because we can't understand that, because we can't come to terms with that simple instruction, because it's not self-evident to us, 
As a result, we do not hear the rest of the instruction that this book gives us. And what is the instruction this book gives us? Holiness. Be ye holy, because I am holy. That is not self-evident. We don't understand the holiness of God, and yet he wants us to be it. How in the world are we to learn about holiness? It's not self-evident. Or other things in this book, as I mentioned to you before, Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. I'm not even sure I know how to love myself, yet God wants me to love my neighbor. As good as that. Loving your neighbor, brethren, is, as I mentioned to you before, is a positive commandment. It is not a passive commandment. It is not a commandment that you get to sit back on your laurels and say, well, I just really didn't do anything this week, and as a result, I have it credited to my spiritual balance sheet. Yes, I obeyed the commandment. I love my neighbor just by sitting perfectly still and doing nothing. Wrong. Wrong. That's not what this book teaches. See, it's not self-evident to you what is the commandment. All the laws concerning sacrifice are, in fact, statutes. And yet God, in his commandment telling us to keep them, places in emphasis statutes before his ordinances. Let me read it to you again. And it's repeated many times in the book, Leviticus 18.5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and mine ordinances, which if a man do, he shall live by them. I want you to take note of the sequence. He didn't say, start first, which is self-evident to you, and then catch up on the others, and then you'll live by them. He said, no, you will start first, which that is not self-evident, and then you will do the ones that are self-evident, and that's how you'll live by them. Now, that's a lot different than what we've heard before. Those who would say, well, I, uh, I, I keep the commandments that I understand, but, but you know, God really hasn't quite shown me yet. I, I don't really fully understand this other commandment. He said, no, you will not live that way. He said, you will first learn to do it because I said to do it, and then later on you'll learn why. You'll first learn to hear my voice and obey my voice first. Then I'll let you learn later why. But you will first obey my voice. You know what? We do the same thing with our children. Did you know that? When our children rise up and we say to them and say, Son, uh, please do this thing over here. And he said, Well, Dad, why? The conversation usually goes something like this. Well, son, because it, it would be better than you. Yeah, but I don't see that. What's so good about that? Okay, well, let me give you another reason. Because I said so. Now go do it. How many of you had that conversation with your children? Are you surprised that God would say the same thing to you? Are you so shocked that God is not so concerned whether you fully understand yet, but that you do understand that he has commanded it and he does want you to obey first, and then maybe if you get smart and you learn, then you'll figure it out a little bit later on. Just like we tell our children, you'll learn, but do it now. That's what sacrifices are about. See, he didn't go into any detail. He doesn't, he doesn't explain here in Leviticus why. He just says, do it. He didn't say, this is what it will mean to you. He just says, do it. He says, the priest will do that. You will do this. You will be careful about doing it exactly the way I tell you to do it. And you will learn to do it that way. You will not change from that way. You will worship me exactly this way. Now, after you've kept the commandment, then you have the right to come back and say, Lord, why did we do that? What was it that I didn't understand and that I need to understand? Because honestly, Lord, you know, if I really understood it, if I could find out what that means, I believe rather than just 
kind of going through the motions and do it. I could do it from the heart. I would want to do it. I wouldn't understand why I'm doing it. Well, guess what, brethren? That's exactly what the Lord wanted you to do. He wanted you to obey Him from the heart. He wanted to motivate you and incentivize you. He wanted to get you to come and say, Lord, why? But to get you to do it properly, He had to show you some things first. He had to teach you. He had to show a distinguishment and a difference of some things so that you could then come back and say, why? Why that distinguishment? Why is it that different? Why? What's the difference between holy and profane? I mean, you tell me that you want me to do this because it will be holy, and if I do it the other way, it's profane. Why? Or clean and unclean. You clearly specify this is clean and that's unclean. It's not evident to me why. But you've said that's the definition. And you say, I'm supposed to just do it. And then after I've done it, then I can come back and I can say, why? Why, why? why did you do that? Or between God and idols. He said, no, you, you will worship me. Just me. Show all worship to me. None to the other. Do it first. Then I'll explain to you. Or light and darkness. Life and death. Do it the way I say first. Then you will learn. This is the way to learn it. I've laid it out. Now, to do that, brethren, we've got to be willing We've got to be willing to follow His Word and just do it. We get to ask questions after it's done. But our duty is to keep it, understand it, be careful, be diligent, do it correctly, do it exactly as He said. And after it's done, then we can go back and we can ask, now I've done it, what, what did I see? What happened and what did I learn from it? Today, in the Messianic movement, as, as people come, what are the things that they have to come to terms with when they come into a congregation? If they want to be part of the congregational family, what, what are the issues that are there? And they're not self-evident. Oh, they have to keep Sabbath. They have to keep a set of holidays. Holidays they're not even familiar with. They have no idea what they mean or what their purpose is, but they just know that they're supposed to could go and participate and do them and kosher. Oh, that's a frightening one. You mean no pig? You mean he just wants me to quit eating pig just altogether? No, no bacon, no BLTs. And what am I supposed to get out of this? I, I think I'm losing one of my favorites. Don't you think? I'm having to make a sacrifice almost here. Look with me to the psalm that we read this evening. And the reason that we read it is because it has to do with this passage, Psalms 40. And in particular, I want you to take note of verse 6. Sacrifice and meal offering thou hast not desired. My ears thou hast opened. Burnt offering and sin offering thou hast not required. Then said I, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Thy law is within my heart. Now I said to you earlier, if we could get the connection between the Messiah and this issue about sacrifices. If somehow we could understand that sacrifices were to help us to see and to understand the Messiah, and we already know the Messiah to be true, we accept the Messiah, we endorse the Messiah, we're for the Messiah, then we would understand the reason for such commandments. Well, brethren... What is the Messiah called? 
the Lamb of God sacrifice. The greatest sacrifice there is. And what this passage is saying, and the Messiah quoted this passage, by the way. He quoted these verses in speaking of himself. He said, guys, sacrifices that you understand, bulls and goats and sheep, that's not what God was after. That's what he specified. He was after something else, something you didn't see. But until you do them, until you obey, you will not have your ears opened and you will not hear these words. You can't receive it until you see the lamb slain, its blood put over the doorpost, until you see the altar, until you smell the sweet savor, you won't get it. You won't understand the work of the Messiah. The very thing that you want to understand most. Even the book of Hebrews says it. The blood of bulls and goats never took away sin. It was a symbol. But until you show that you will simply trust the Word of God, that you will simply obey the Word of God, until you show that you have the simplest of faith to just do what He said, I'm telling you, you will not trust the Messiah. If you're not willing, if you're not willing to look at the Messiah and simply say, yes, Lord, I accept you without qualification, without explanation, even though it's not evident to me what you've done, until you're willing to say, yes, Lord, I receive you, you have no idea what salvation is. Now, I'm all for all our brethren understanding that the Messiah is the sacrifice for sin, that they have sinned, that they need to have it, you know, so forth. You know what? The average person who comes to faith hasn't got the foggiest idea about how that the Messiah, the great work he really did, how he came from heaven, how he came down to earth, he was in the flesh of a man, all the issues that he had to face, all the things that he did with regard to the teaching of Moses, what baptism has to do with it, what propitiation is, or redemption, or the feast of redemption. He didn't understand all that. That's not self-evident to him when he sees the Messiah. But what he does here is this, accept me, believe in me. And unless there are brethren who say yes, You can believe in him. Just do what he says because he's God and he said it. The way Yeshua tried to illustrate this to Nicodemus, you know, the great Torah scholar in his day who came to him secretly by night and he made reference to a very simple thing that happened in the wilderness. So there were some fiery serpents that came in and the people were being judged. And it's a very short little story in the Torah. Moses cried out, God, help us. You know, we need help. And he said, okay, we'll make it real simple. He said, Moses, take a bronze serpent, wrap it around your staff, stick it in the air. Anybody that looks, lives. Anybody that looks, lives. Don't have to do anything else. Just look. Look at the serpent. Lift it up. Look at Moses' staff. Lift it up. That's all you have to do. You'll be healed. Here's some guy who's been bit. He's laying in his tent. He's dying. I mean in torture. This is not a feel-good judgment. And in walks his friend, his brother. He walks in and he says, he says, Mordecai, we got good news. God's given an answer to Moses concerning this. What? What? What is it? He said he's instructed him to make a bronze serpent, put it upon his staff, raise it up. And if you just look at it, you'll live. What? What? Bronze serpent. That, that, that don't make sense to me. I don't get it. No, you see, you'll live. If you, all you have to do is just look. Just take the Word of God. Just believe. Just follow that one thing. Learn. Just take the Word of God. Believe. Do it. Yeah, but I don't get it. And the guy that don't get it lays in bed and dies because he won't trust. 
central teaching of Torah. The whole book of Leviticus is trying to teach you. You're supposed to obey the Lord even if it's not self-evident to you. It will be explained later. And it's over silly things that you don't think are of any value. Like clean and unclean foods. Sacrifices. Altars. Priests. Stuff that, that don't make any sense. What's that got to do with wisdom or knowledge or understanding? Well, you know, that's, that's ritual. That's archaic stuff. How can a bronze serpent lifted up in the air possibly heal me of this snake bite? Well, faith, God's Word will heal you. Yeah, but I don't get it. I don't understand. That's the reason why we have no confidence in God. We won't take Him at His Word. It's the reason why we don't see our tabernacle. It's the reason why we don't see the work of our great high priest. Sacrifices are no more. Tabernacles are no more. That's the reason why we can't learn how to love one another. I don't, I don't get it. You want me to do what? I've, I've been nice to him. I didn't hurt him. I didn't do anything to him. But you want me to do so, what? That's the commandment of God? The guy's not very lovely. Have you noticed him over there? He's kind of ugly, in fact. Uh, and he did something to me the other day. You want me to love him? <laughs> Come on. Besides that, I heard, him, I heard him say something about you the other day. And, and <laughs> You know what the Scripture actually tells us? Turn with me to Hebrews 10. You've heard me share this verse before when we're talking about the value of the Torah from Hebrews 10.28. So let me point that verse out again just very quickly. Hebrews 10.28, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. You've heard me teach that. It's a pretty clear statement. It may not be self-evident to everyone. But it does go on to explain just a little bit why that's such a powerful commandment. He goes on to say further, How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. If you want to understand all those interesting polysyllable words there, like sanctified, covenant, um, unclean spirit of grace, then you have to receive the instruction of Moses. Moses gives all the instruction about those things because here's what he basically says. He says, if you take the posture, let's move the law of Moses out. Let's move out all this instruction. Let's take the book of Leviticus, all that sacrifice, but let's just get it out of the way. It does not apply. Sacrifices are no more. Let's set it aside. You know what you do? You take the sacrifice of Yeshua, which has been specified by these commandments, and you say, it is of no value. And you take the blood that is sitting upon the altar and you jerk the altar out from under it and the blood falls right to the ground and then you walk over and trample it on the foot with your foot. And it says at that point, not only are you violating something that God specified, but you're insulting the very spirit of grace. You claim that you have the right to do such a thing. Now, in this country, because we have laws which says freedom of speech, we're in a perplexing position because if we really have freedom of speech, shouldn't we be allowed for any of the citizens, if they want to exercise their freedom of speech, to destroy and burn the flag? Now, something in the spirit of the average citizen says, no, that's not right. That something wrong with that. This last week... The ceremony of our brother at his funeral was draped with a flag. And the flag was retired. The men came with great honor and respect and took this symbol and folded it properly. 
with honor and distinction, with white gloves, and handed it to the widow. And was expressing to her something wonderful and loving. Thank you from a nation for the life of your husband and his service to all of us. How would you feel if, having just seen that ceremony, you saw another guy just outside the church burn the flag? Now you understand how God feels when he has used his altar and his assistant to give you the final sacrifice, the sacrifice for willful sin and death, and you turn around and take the very symbol that sanctifies that blood, the very system that he has used to save you, and you've said, oh, that don't mean nothing. I guarantee you the Lord has been insulted. And that's what this verse is talking about. But let's back up just a little bit further, and let me show you what the Hebrew writer was trying to tell you about what is the real value of this teaching. At verse 19 in Hebrews 10, he begins, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Yeshua, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled clean from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Every one of these things comes from the book of Leviticus. Every instruction of the book of Leviticus is telling you how to do this. And he says, let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And then he says this, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together, as the manner of some is, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And this reference let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds is what Leviticus is trying to teach us about love your neighbor. It's an act of your will. It's not an emotional state of mind. It is a commandment. You don't understand it. It's not self-evident to you. But I want you to go. I want you to make an investment. I want you to make a sacrifice. I want you to pour your life into another person. I want you to go and actively love him. But how do we do that? How do we do that? I think it's real simple, brethren. Let me take the most simple example that we have before you right now. Your own family and your own marriage. The Scripture tells every husband, he is commanded, love your wife. Interestingly enough, the wife is not commanded to love her husband, rather to submit to him. But for the man, let's speak to that for a moment. What, what is it that that means? And if you do marital counseling or whatever, one of the things you have to do when you have a marriage that's not doing so good is that you have to go back to those basic commandments. You have to go to the man and you have to say, man, tell, let, let's examine. What are you doing to love your wife? And you know what we go through? We ask him things like, uh, when's the last time you sent her any flowers? When's the last time that you spoke it to her? When, when's the last time that you extended a kind expression to her, that you uh, complimented her, you praised her? When was the last time that you demonstrated you actively, an act of your will, you loved her? When, oh, when were you for sure in your actions truly faithful? Or does she have a question about your faithfulness? Because you can't go around claiming that you loved your wife if you're not being faithful to her. The word here is a very active, very direct word. And I like the New American Standard where it says, let us stimulate. Now, husbands, and you will pardon me for a moment, I know, I know in a congregation we never speak about sex. Okay, so... Special dispensation, we're going to talk about sex for just for a moment because I need to illustrate my point. Every husband knows what making love to his wife is. It's an active, 
specific thing in which that you go into your privacy and you stimulate her. And you show you love her. And you do love her. It's a very active, specific thing. Now, brethren, that's what the commandment's trying to say to us. It's trying to say that these things, which are not necessarily self-evident, just take my word, do it. You'll learn later why. You'll understand. By so doing it, by so giving flowers, she knows that it's not the flowers. She knows it's not the house. It's not the groceries in the cupboard. But if she didn't have those things, she wouldn't know. She knows that love is really you. It's knowing you. And if we would simply do what the Lord specifies, in the way He specifies, we would learn through this sacrifice, through this system, through this method, through this way that He has specified the love of God. Did I not say to you that the Messiah is this final sacrifice? He is the Lamb of God's sacrifice. Isn't it not by that sacrifice that we see the love of God in that while we were yet sinners, yet He died for us and so forth showed His love for us? Is that not right? Doesn't the Scripture say that? Isn't that what we're supposed to be learning? But we're not going to learn it unless we're willing to receive the basic instruction to simply do that which is not evident to us at first. The second commandment, like unto the first, unless we are willing to begin to actively show love to our neighbor, they're not going to believe it. The wife won't believe it. The neighbor won't believe it. Your brother won't believe it. You must do this thing. The interesting thing about the commandment of love your neighbor, it doesn't say love your neighbor if your neighbor loves you. It doesn't say love your neighbor if he's a lovely guy. It doesn't say love your neighbor if he's the right financial strata level to match you. It just says love your neighbor. It's a pretty direct command. doesn't set any qualifications, doesn't set any conditions, is not self-evident, and but it is commanded of you to do it. I believe that God wants us to learn these important distinctions of our faith. And I believe the key, the key to learning these most important distinctions, even these ones I've read to you from the book of Hebrews, to learn what is clean and unclean, pure, what is holy, so that you'll understand the work of the Messiah and what has been done for you, so that you'll understand the love of God, how special it is, so that you'll learn to love your brother, to love God the way He specifies. It's you must accept what the Lord has said. Instead of this business of, I don't quite get that. It's not evident to me. I think that's the reason why He gives us this book, this book of Leviticus to teach to us. Because fact is, brethren, and I'm doing this very quickly because I'm running out of time. Let me just rattle off the sacrifices that are specifically specified in the New Testament for you. In Romans 12, 2, it says one of the sacrifices is you. You are to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord. A living sacrifice. You! Or to be one of those sacrifices. How do you present yourself to the altar? How do you get up on that altar? How can you do that unless you understand the teaching of Leviticus? The sacrifice of love, Ephesians 5 2, just like Yeshua. The drink offering of being poured out so that you'll understand your service that you are to give by faith. Philippians 2.17. You're to be like the drink offering, the libation on the altar, poured out for others, emptied of yourself. 
How about Philippians 4.18? That what you do shall be well-pleasing so it will be an acceptable sacrifice. So that when you do go and you do a deed, so that it's well-pleasing. And finally, even as we did here this evening, the sacrifice of your lips of praise and thanksgiving. Hebrews 13, 15. So that you'll know how to come before the Lord, before His altar, before His holy temple, before His very presence, and out of your mouth comes forth the sacrifice of praise. Leviticus has a lot to do with us. The teaching of sacrifices has everything to do with our service. Everything to do with the most important things we're trying to do. That is love God and to love our neighbors. And I'm telling you right now that if you do not learn, you do not come to learn that you must obey the Lord. Even if you don't understand, you'll learn later that it was very important. You must learn that first or else you're going to limit your instruction in holiness cleanliness, kosher, purity, and love. You will have limited yourself. And that is not what we're after. Amen? For more information about Line and Line Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968, Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlam.net. Thank you.